been bones are wrapped up tight. Your shoulders bend. You can spend the night. Did you turn it? Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler, and this is episode 68. Lately, I've been working on my approach toward opinions and positions I fundamentally disagree with, and, of course, the people that hold them. It's hard for many reasons, but not least because growing up in my family, those we disagreed with didn't simply hold harmless opposing viewpoints. They were cast as mortal enemies, to be defended against at all costs, shunned, vilified, even attacked if the occasion warranted. I'm starting this episode with a word about this because this very impulse has been challenged exponentially over the past year, our pandemic year. I feel like there are three major approaches to COVID-19 amongst the people I talk to, hear about, and read about. Some are my friends. Some are people I don't know at all. The first is the approach my family has taken, which is to be as cautious and preventative as we pragmatically can be. Teaching, learning, and working from home, and spending as little time in public spaces as possible. I feel like a hyper-awareness toward the disease and its communicability has permeated my consciousness, and I almost can't imagine living without it. That's one approach. Another is to outright deny that the disease is as deadly and communicable as people say, and as media reports. To live life as if there were no pandemic, to eschew the efficacy and importance of masking and distancing, and in extreme cases, to even decry the illiberality and oppressiveness of the measures taken by governments as recommended by health officials, and to discount reports of massive suffering and death as a result of the disease, perhaps to even go so far as to say that the disease is a hoax, and that it's a political ploy utilized to force a change in governmental leadership. This enrages me. I have the irrational impulse to wish suffering and death from COVID on all these people as comeuppance for their selfishness, willful ignorance, and the harm they cause others with their irresponsible behavior. Then, there's a third position, it seems, one I contemplate more than the previous one. That is kind of a middle ground where people acknowledge the disease but seem to reluctantly take part in safety and prevention measures and generally forego travel and socializing restrictions. I've heard them say that the disease just, quote, isn't that bad, unquote, and that it only really affects old people or otherwise unhealthy people, and that, quote, everyone's going to eventually get it, unquote, so we might as well get on with our lives and try to do things as normally as possible so things don't run too far off the rails. This coming from lots of people I know and who I hold in high regard, intelligent people with whom I agree on most things in the political realm. So it boggles the mind, even all these months later, when they go on vacation, hang out with friends they aren't potting with, or engage in behavior that, to my mind at least, qualifies as risky under the current circumstances and health conditions. Again, my right isn't their right. And while I have the impulse to dismiss them, or I suppose, in the parlance of our time, cancel them, I remember that they have just as much right to their convictions as I do, even if I think those convictions can get them killed. I also know that I don't know very much about this disease, And also that what we do know seems to change pretty rapidly in keeping with the alarming alacrity of the rate of change that these years seem to bring. So here, I turn to Michael Taylor, a respiratory therapist who works in the York 
PA area. We talk about his career and, in the main, how his expertise is utilized in the current pandemic. I don't posit Mike Taylor here as the definitive voice on the subject, and neither does he, though I surely present his perspective as a means of telling a certain kind of story in a certain kind of way. In short, I still think something needs to be done about how we as individuals and as a culture have responded, or not responded, to COVID-19. My name is Michael Taylor, um, born and raised here in York, Pennsylvania. And I am a respiratory therapist, um, some may say respiratory care practitioner. Most people that I run into don't either don't know what a respiratory therapist is or they never heard of the profession. Let's say I don't know uh, what it is. Respiratory therapists are practitioners, just like, say, a, a registered nurse. But at the same time, we, we don't only deal with clinical aspects of care. We're also technicians. We have to be able to understand not only like clinical pathology when it comes to uh, physiology and especially focusing on the cardiac system, the heart and lung cardiopulmonary system, uh, which is basically mainly the, uh, the process by which we bring oxygen in to our lungs and how that oxygen then gets delivered to the rest of the areas, which could be tissues, organs, every part of us as a human being needs oxygen. Mm -hmm. Our focus is how to make sure people that have acute and chronic conditions, you know, can maintain a healthy or close to healthy process when it comes to cardiopulmonary function. We do this using different methods and different types of equipment. So that's where the technologist part comes in. So there's ventilators. People are pretty familiar with ventilators. If you ever heard the term life support. Yeah. Um, so yep. life support can include mainly, it, it, primarily it's the mechanical ventilator, which is hard to watch movies where you see people in a hospital bed and you see them hooked up to some sort of life support Be, because it's very rare. Nowadays you're starting to see <laughs> where they, they're actually a little more accurate, but we are dealing with tubes, machines like ventilators, um, monitors, um, different types of pieces of equipment that monitor vital signs, but mainly respiratory therapists are synonymous with ventilators. We're not only there working with life support, we're in so many different areas, um, just like a, a, you would see a nurse. So they say you'll see respiratory therapists um, bringing life into the world and we also take life out. Uh, we're there when the babies are born and a lot of times, especially with the preemies, we're the ones that get the babies breathing, mm -hmm. you know, get the lungs working. And then if the babies need a little more um, assistance, we can put them on mechanical ventilators. Um, and then you'll see us do every step of the way from the NICU uh, or labor and delivery. Then you'll see us in pediatrics taking care of uh, children and, and young adults. Um, you'll see us in um, the general hospital setting. You'll see mm -hmm. us in home care mm -hmm. when people uh, have oxygen needs or they're at home and maybe they have COPD or other chronic diseases. Um, you know, there's companies that will deliver oxygen concentrators and oxygen tanks and CPAP machines and BiPAP machines where they have to have licensed respiratory therapists to be able to help those people at home learn how to use, use their the equipment. Yes. yes. And we also check up on them. 
from home care to sleep medicine um, to all the uh, different um, ICUs, med surge, surge trans, um, cardiac ICU. I work in what's called LTAC, which is a long-term acute care. You'll see us in nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities. Um, and then on the back end of one's journey through life, there sometimes you get to a point where a decision needs to be made if you're on the life support and that, that machine has to be turned off. Mm-hmm. So I'm that person, uh, unfortunately, who gets the order from the doctor to wow. ter- turn the machine off and pull the tube. So that's called a terminal wean. I've been doing a lot more of those lately. Yeah. Um, and that's something personally that I don't forget. I don't forget my terminal weans. It's a very um, bittersweet kind of situation for me because sometimes people are just left. They're left. I, I And this can get very ethical, okay? I mean, uh-huh. I, I feel like sometimes people are just left in a situation for, you know, reasons that may be more related to families own selfishness let's just say that while they're suffering and while it's probably beyond time for them to leave this earth we're still there kind of trying to manage them sure so there comes a time when the the order is written and they say mike you gotta we're gonna we're gonna make this person comfort care the family has finally decided to do a terminal wean so then i have to work with the nurses and um we we uh make that decision. Respiratory therapists right now are very, it's interesting because now more people know what we are because they've been on the news. They've been interviewed, um, you know, which is, it's, it's pretty exciting to see that now more, more and more people are aware of of the respiratory therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't start out as a respiratory therapist. I started out, I went to IUP after high school, uh, which is Indiana University of Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. uh, to study sports medicine. So I, I became an exercise physiologist and graduated in 2003, um, ended up doing some teaching uh, at York College of Pennsylvania, teaching mm-hmm. wellness and fitness classes um, under physical education. And then I did get, I ended up getting a job in public health, working for the uh, health department, York City Health Bureau, which was um, funded by the, the Pennsylvania um, State Department of Health. Mm-hmm. So I worked on a lot of uh, grant initiatives. The public health part, of my journey kind of really opened my eyes up to um, learning more about chronic diseases. Um, I was doing a lot of education um, with folks in the community on diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, cardiovascular disease, COPD. And the more and more I learned about research and epidemiology and a lot of the, uh, the ways chronic disease has an impact on our community, not only did I change my ways and start eating more clean. I got away from processed foods and started focusing more on functional fitness and, and, and health, uh, from a different perspective. I I also wanted to learn more and I ended up deciding that I was going to go into, I wanted to get into some sort of uh, medical care. I originally wanted to actually be a doctor, but, um, it just wasn't in the cards for me. Sure. Uh, It's a very long road. I looked into nursing, ended up getting into from graduation in 2009. I wanted, I passed my boards after taking it twice. And then uh, I got into home care. Um, had a pretty good working relationship with a lot of the pulmonary physicians. Um, 
and I started really learning a lot about um, the insurance process um, mm. because I handled a lot of the authorizations and all the um, insurance verifications and all of the codes and and um, uh, processes that go along with getting people covered, uh, which that is a whole nother conversation within itself to, to, to really get into a lot. Well, of the, the, first, the first thing I thought of was just what a nightmare it must be. Um, and, you know, you mentioned codes and like mm -hmm. all the different codes you put in, like these numbers that mean whether a person is going to get the care that they, they need or not and whether they can afford it or not. Yes. And it's just, it's because yes. of the system that we have. So as far as I know, and I, I'm coming at it from a very, from, you know, a place of very little knowledge, but it, it, it strikes me as being very convoluted kind of on purpose uh, mm -hmm. and very difficult to navigate. Uh, and if you're just a regular person who's just trying to get care, um, mm -hmm. you need somebody who really understands the system in order to basically be a guide for you or else you get lost and you, oh, you yeah. won't, get, won't get the care that you need. Or if you do, it'll be exorbitantly expensive. Right. And depending on what kind of insurance you had, usually dependent on what quality right. of care you got or what quality of product that you, you were able to get. So it boils um, down to like your economic status basically determines whether or not you're going to be uh, healthy and well or not. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth there, but uh, the one thing that you said a, a few minutes ago when you started talking about your journey um, was how you started when you were working in... Um, uh, you know, health and medicine within in your county and um, all the diseases that you were seeing. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to, if you don't mind, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about what those diseases were and what you think they're, they're caused by. And if there is sort of like a, a larger socioeconomic conclusion one could draw from the kinds of diseases like you were talking about diabetes and COPD and the kinds of things that you were dealing with the people in certain communities generally uh, are afflicted by why mm -hmm. that might be uh, that those things happen in certain communities and not in others. It's kind of a leading question, but I, I sort of yeah. want to get your take on this from somebody who's been in the trenches. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. A great question. Um, well, I, you know, working, I was working at the time at the, for the York City Health Bureau. Um, so York, York, Pennsylvania, York City. Um, there's some similarities, and I think you're 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 working out of Lancaster. Um, yeah, I live in Lancaster County. Uh, I live Lancaster very County. close to the to the the border with York County. I live in in Mountville, which is like ten minutes from the Susquehanna River, uh, ten okay. minutes from John's house in in Hellam. So you want you kind of have an understanding then of like our a kind of our um, so socioeconomic kind of um I mean if I had to in, yes in, if in I had to if I had to put a you know a label on it I would say that York is economically depressed. Yeah, yeah. There's especially when you get in, you know, into York City. Mm -hmm. And and obviously there's definitely areas of the county that you can talk about. Um and the county had its own health department as well. And I my my position was as a um, health educator. I worked on a grant that was called Opanic, um, which was funded by the state health department. The OPANIC stands for osteoporosis, physical activity, nutrition, and cardiovascular disease. Hmm. So there were a whole bunch of little grant initiatives um, and, that I worked on. One day I could have been working with the schools instead of um, focusing on um, soda-laden vending machines and and all the processed foods and stuff that they were handing out at lunch, trying right. to get them to change their menus and looking at studies that you know, compared progress, you know, of groups 
that had breakfast in the morning or ate, you know, a cleaner diet mm -hmm. um, compared to a lot of the junk and the processed foods that, or maybe, you know, um, you know, when you're dealing with kids in, in, in inner city and urban areas, maybe they don't even eat, you right. know, until that, that lunch period in school. Um, we focused on uh, smoking mm -hmm. cessation programs, people that had COPD, um, obesity programs. So we, mm -hmm. we tried to push physical activity in the schools when you have um, programs that are trying to eliminate uh, physical uh, activity out of the school curriculum. Mind you, we also published the epidemiology, like the report on uh -huh. how many cases of particular diseases that we you saw in York County. Uh, mm -hmm. We had a clinic. We gave out contraceptives. Um, we did testing. We had a nurse who actually used to find sex workers, you know, to make sure that they had what they needed. So, I mean, you can go on and on. And I think a lot of the issues that we saw, you could also draw a comparison to deprivation that's linked to socioeconomic status mm -hmm. um, within our city. Income levels, you know, there was definitely disparities amongst different communities. Uh, I grew up here in York in the African-American community. Uh, we have a large population of Hispanics. Access to resources and opportunities from the school system to job. You know, me growing up in this environment, I saw kind of firsthand coming from Personally, I came from a, a single parent, low income um, family and a background myself. So a lot of things hit close to home when I had that job right. and I would be going to schools and going into places and communities where people knew me. One of my initiatives that actually got me into farming, starting community gardens in the city. That was one of the initiatives to try to get people that lived in a section eight low income housing give them the opportunity to learn how to grow their own food mm -hmm. so that they don't have to go spend their money. And also the food that they grew would be more nutritious. Let's move to, uh, okay. So you were, you were giving me your, um, you're giving us your, your journey and you'd gotten to the point where now um, you were um, working with uh, physicians. Uh, you were doing in-home care as a respiratory therapist and you're working with physicians. What was the next step? How did you get involved with what you're so, doing right now? So after um, working in home care, I uh, ended up getting into sales and understanding all the testing and all the data that needs to be collected by the insurance companies for them to be able to, to pay for the care and for the equipment. Um, after going through that process, I ended up working in the subacute area. And now I'm kind of getting more vet experience. I'm working on the life support machines. I'm working inpatient. And I'm really starting to learn the difference. What's is very interesting is that when you get inside the hospital system, there are different areas. So if you were to say get admitted into the hospital, you may have a trauma. You may be in an ICU. Those are short-term areas. So you have respiratory therapists working in the ICU. So if somebody comes in with COVID, they're typically infectious for 10 days or so. Um, they're considered what's called COVID positive. Not everybody has the same symptoms. Once they can get them to a point where they're somewhat recovered, they may then get transferred to the general hospital floor. Um, and the general hospital floor, you could possibly then from there recover even further along and go home. Sometimes you go from the ICU to where I work at, which is called an LTAC, which is a long-term acute care. So mm -hmm. you're still acute, 
but now you're there for a longer period of time. Your insurance is going to cover your stay for maybe 25 days or so, 30 days. And our job is to try to get you off the ventilator, get you off the high flow oxygen. And then from there, you may go to a nursing home, uh, what they call a skilled nursing facility. I've worked in many of these different areas over the past 11 years. To me, the whole process of how long people are able to stay, depending on what kind of issues they have, how we, how fast we can move to get them better before the time runs out. Every, every area is different. So where I'm at right now in the LTAC, we, we get people that come in after their 10 days, they're called COVID recovery or COVID R if they have COVID after they've had one or two negative COVID tests. The thing that I don't think people, most people understand is that COVID in our, in our environment, COVID seems to do more damage to people after they don't have COVID anymore. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. I would love mm-hmm. either you can finish your thought here, but at, at, you know maybe a little bit down the line, you can sort of begin to take us through um, what you see from the minute someone comes into the hospital and what mm-hmm. your job is in terms of getting them better. And when you say that COVID um, does a lot more damage, I would like to know sort of details about what that damage is. Mm-hmm. So when people walk away mm-hmm. and are do recover, like what they're still living with and what actually winds up killing people. So that when you, mm-hmm. when they do go down that, um, the terminal road, what you're actually seeing and when it turns a corner and when you know there's no recovery and when you actually have to um, end, uh, end life. And at some point you could get to kind of like a, uh, if you will, like a play-by-play of how that all works and why people are really so misinformed and therefore oblivious or blasé or, or otherwise checked out um, and therefore not so concerned. Um, and then there are people who are even further down the line who are who deny that covid mm-hmm. is even as deadly as it is and so mm-hmm. like if you gave us some hard science on those things I, i'm trying to change people's minds here and i don't know how successful i'll be but mm-hmm. i've got to i feel like i got to take a shot there's a hunger for information that it's very difficult for you to obtain from the outside right yeah, yes and if i was in that position if i wasn't doing what i was doing now i would be i would be wanting to know all the same things I think it's best for me to start off with an explanation of the fact that, like in the hospital, like what I was trying to say before, every unit is different. Every unit is different when it comes to the care, when it comes to the the level of care needed, the, the disease process of the patient, um, and, and what the staff goes through. So in an ICU, you may have one nurse with like one or two patients. Where I work, you have one nurse with six. Hmm. <laughs> you have one respiratory therapist with six, seven, eight, nine ventilators with two staff. And depending on how many total people you have on oxygen and on ventilators, the, the, then, you, then you get into the matrix <laughs> where there's a corporate system that's involved in figuring out how many nurses and respiratory therapists and aides, CNAs, and all the different people that work in our environments, how many people are actually needed to care for the people that are there? And they have it all figured out. So I worked in I worked in middle management. My job when I was doing that was to fill out the spreadsheets that basically told them this is how many patients we have on this type of machine. This is how many patients we have getting oxygen. There, the, the it self populates and tells you how many hours that you can dedicate 
to having that clinician on the floor, which doesn't really take into consideration the needs. So as you go around from the right. ICU or you go into the you go into the skilled nursing facility or you go to the LTAC, there, you're, you're, you're going to have different answers to your questions based on just the environment, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So having worked in different environments, I would have to give you different answers to those questions. So focused on, like, if I focus on where I'm at right now in the, in the LTAC, yeah. my, I can I can kind of give you an idea of what it is you're looking for as far as an answer. And then part of me is feeling like, man, but you're missing so much more because there's this is how it happens in these other areas. So when that, you- Yes, when that you, makes sense. Yeah. I, I just felt like I had to kind of break that down a little bit. And a lot of what happens, it, it rides along a line of care and profit. It's a very yeah. delicate balance, which causes sometimes it causes some stress and frustration. So I can understand why people outside are frustrated or they're coming up with their own assumptions as to what's been going on over the past eight months or so with this pandemic. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of times you're in a situation where there just aren't any answers because we just ha we don't know about this. It's, it's not like it's an old disease. One of my most frustrating moments was a couple of months ago where I had a patient who was dying and I, my a respiratory therapy, we answer to the pulmonologist. Okay. So those are the lung doctors. We answer to pulmonary um, doctors. We answer to pulmonary PAs and nurse practitioners. And um, they don't just come to our unit. They go to multiple hospitals. And we wait for them to come in, and typically they give us the orders as far as what kind of settings we're going to put them on, or what kind of how high the flow is going to be for these particular patients. And one of my most frustrating moments was when we we just had some people. These people that aren't doing so well could be in their fifties. Young people could have been a, a guy who was working in his own business. Um, you know, the month, a month prior, and he's now in the bed dying. Um, it could be, and we also see people in their 70s and 80s and 90s uh, who are suffering as well. Not everybody dies. Some people walk out. But at this particular moment, I had somebody there and they were on one of our machines and I, I just couldn't get them comfortable. They're breathing very fast. Like 50 breaths a minute is pretty fast. The average is like 16 to 20 breaths is like a normal breath rate. You can go from 12 to 20, you're fine. But if you're breathing 50, you know, you, you, that's too fast. You know, right. your oxygen saturations are dropping. Um, and, you know, we're waiting for the pulmonary team to come in. And when the pulmonary team comes and you're going to this person and you're saying, hey, this is what's going on. I can't get them stable. And they snap at you. Hmm. basically telling you, look, I got 20 other people that are ha that are in the same way. I do not know what to tell you. This is COVID. We don't have the answers. And this person is in the bed and you're like, okay, so I'm on my own. The, the nurses are frustrated. You're frustrated. And you have so many other patients that you need to go see because you're on a time limit. It's very frustrating and you really don't have anybody to talk to about it because everybody's stressed out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the nurses are stressed out and you're the person you answer to, the expert, doesn't know what to tell you yeah. to save this person. 
because they got 20 other people or 10 other people that are going through the same thing in all the other hospitals that they go to. And they're, they're stressed out. Right. Um, I don't know if you're how aware of the policies that you are, but these people cannot have visitors. So if they do get to the point where we're doing terminal weans, even though we're pressed for time, we're trying to hang out with them when, when it's time, you know, for them to go. We have staff that goes around with um, tablets and they'll set up Zoom conferences and stuff like that. And you could have anyone at any end of this health spectrum at any age range. So you may have the one person who came in who had COVID. They're, they're COVID recovery now. Let's say they come in with uh, six liters nasal cannula. Okay, so they're getting a flow of six liters of oxygen through the nose tubing. Um, and our job is to, you know, they didn't have oxygen at home. So our job is to try to get them off the oxygen. So we'll go in. Those are our, those are our easiest patients. We don't have to spend too much time with them. I go in basically between us and night shift. You know, we, we try to turn their oxygen down. We watch their oxygen saturation uh, which is the uh, the you know the amount of oxygen in their blood, um, which is supposed to be at least above eighty eight to ninety percent or higher. So we have machines that beep if it goes lower than that. And let's say I have um, Joe Schmo. He's sitting there on six liters. He's thirty five years old. And the next day I go in, I get him from six liters to four liters. And then the next day we get him down to three liters, and then two liters. And then finally, we get him on what we call room air, which is what you're breathing right now, I assume, unless you have an oxygen tank with you. Um, And I'm breathing room air right now. Room air is 21% oxygen, okay? And he's now, you know, basically from the cardiopulmonary standpoint, unless he has other things going on and he's working with rehab, he's now off my service. And he's getting better. Now, let's just say we have somebody else who is around the same age who comes in on six liters nasal cannula in the other room across the hall. And I'm there with them. We're joking around. We're talking. You know, I'm learning about them. They're learning about me. And then the next day I come in, I got to take them from six liters and I have to bump them up to eight liters. And they're getting a little more short of breath. And then one day I come in and we have them all the way up to 15 liters. And I have nowhere to go because... Once you get the 15 liters, now you got to put them on a different device. Now, before, maybe when I met them, they were breathing at about 12 to 15, 16 breaths a minute. Mm-hmm. Now they're breathing at 35 breaths a minute. Now mm-hmm. I'm putting them on what's called a heated high flow system because the flow is so high going into their nose on this system that without the heated, the heat and the moisture that we that goes along with it, they would dry out and their nose would crack and bleed and things like that. So we give them high flows, like you're talking 30 liters per minute, all the way up to 60 liters per minute if they need it. And now we have a dial that puts their oxygen percent higher. So I was saying right now, you and I are breathing 21%. When you put somebody on a uh, what the nasal cannula, right. so that one le- that one liter now it goes from 21% room air on one liter, you're breathing 24% oxygen. Every liter you add up to six, now you add four. One liter, you're 24, two liters, you're 28, three liters, um, you're 32, and it goes up from there. We've gotten to the point where you're all the way up to 15 liters, and we cannot maintain your oxygen saturation. This is the COVID pattern 
But guess what? You are not COVID positive. You haven't been COVID positive for a week. Okay. So what's what's but going on? This is so. It seems what 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 seems to happen is people who who go through with this condition, <clears throat> they go into the ICU, they make it out of the ICU, and they come into our facility. Even though they're not positive, the virus, they still have viral shedding, which means they could still throw a positive every now and then. But once you're past that 10 days, you know, you're, you have the antibodies, um, you are considered recovery, COVID R. But it causes so much damage and wrecks so much havoc in your, your vascular system, your lungs and your vascular system. Sometimes it causes people to go into uh, renal failure and they have to go on dialysis. Um, so I, I hate to pause you here for a second, but I have to ask a really stupid question. It's okay. So we're talking about um, measures that you take in order to uh, alleviate people's difficulty breathing. So can you, I, I, there may not be a simple way to, just, to explain this, but can mm -hmm. you do your best to explain to a lay person who knows nothing about what the disease actually does to the pulmonary system, whereby it becomes necessary to pump people with so much oxygen. What is it that does that? How does the disease work so that it shuts down the breathing system? Some people have different responses and different reactions that don't really put them in a critical state. Some people don't have any symptoms. Some people lose their taste and they lose their smell and don't have to go to the hospital. But when you're in the hospital, and now it's affecting your lungs to that extent. What they're calling it is they're calling it COVID pneumonia. Okay. So not everybody that gets COVID gets COVID pneumonia. Okay. Okay. So once you get COVID pneumonia, if you have an understanding of like what a okay. viral pneumonia could do, would do to your lungs, it, there, there's a lot of fluid that can build up in the lung tissue on a basic level to try to, to get an idea of how this disease is impacting people. The lungs, um, in healthy lungs, you have uh, millions of little air sacs that are microscopic called alveoli. And those alveoli are where the vessels meet, where the vasculature um, meets in the lungs. So you have little capillaries where those little mini veins and arteries meet on the alveoli and that's where gas exchange happens. Okay. So when when you inhale and you're breathing in that 21% mm -hmm. oxygen, there's other gases in the air. So you're breathing that in, your little air sacs in your lungs, they fill up, your lungs inflate and that oxygen now is carried from those capillaries into your bloodstream. And it and it carries it to the heart. And then the heart pumps that oxygen-rich blood out to the rest of your body. And then what happens then is this, this, the carbon dioxide that's in your, in, your, in your body that your veins return back to your lungs. Now that goes out of your lungs when you exhale. So that's called gas exchange. Okay. Too much carbon dioxide, if you're not able to get that carbon dioxide out, it causes problems. Mainly um, what they call CO2 toxicity or... Um, uh, CO2 narcosis. Um, it, it, it changes your, your um, blood pH. The normal pH is uh, seven, like say 7.3, you know, five to 7.45. So if you retain too much CO2 because your lungs have been destroyed either by COVID, cigarette smoke, 
maybe asbestos. If you're a construction worker and you've been breathing sand or a farmer and you've been breathing mold, all types of things can destroy those lung tissues and cause that CO2 to be retained. Not only is it causing the CO2 to be retained, it's also preventing the oxygen from diffusing into the blood. Okay. So if we're talking about COVID, COVID causes a lot of internal damage to the structures inside the lungs. Okay. And also those, those vessels that bring the oxygen in and take the CO2 out, they can become inflamed. And then they can, be, they can also have fluid leach out into the surrounding tissue. And that, could, that fluid that goes around the lungs can prevent the lungs from expanding. So it almost creates like a vice. Okay. And doesn't even allow healthy lung tissue to open up, which further impedes the lungs function. So now you're having problems maintaining somebody's oxygen saturation. Um, and what happens is the, the body starts to go into a, a hypoxic response or a, what they call a hypercapnic response, which basically the body, the, the, the brain can tell when there's the gases are off, when there's not a, there's too much CO2 or not enough oxygen, so then it starts changing the pace and the speed at which you breathe. So, so we can tell when somebody goes into distress, then we need to change something. That means right. we need to put them on a higher flow of oxygen to try to keep them stable. Because if we don't if we don't pump enough oxygen into this person, then then what's going to happen is that they're they're going to go what's called hypoxic. If you go hypoxic, that leads to hypoxemia, which means that there's now not enough oxygen getting delivered to the tissues, most importantly, your organs. Mm -hmm. So that oxygen needs to get to your brain. Mm -hmm. It needs to get to your kidneys. It needs to get to your liver. It needs to get to your skin. It needs to go everywhere. So you can kind of see how some, a diseased lung can directly and indirectly affect the whole body. Your explanation also gave me a sense of why it might be so diverse in terms of the way that it affects different people. Because there are different people that are going to come to you with different pre-existing conditions, whether because of age or because of behavior. Right. Those things only compound. So COVID only compounds those problems which already exist. And this difficulty breathing that, that COVID creates and, and, and the kind of the blockages that it creates in, in terms of getting oxygen to tissues and organs yep. uh, blows up all of those problems. With that being said, what you just said six months ago made practical sense. Now, later in the game, as we start to learn more, I'm starting to see now and read about people who are deficient in vitamin D. Also, there seems to be some indication that people who smoke may have more protection from COVID, believe it or not. That's and it has to do with the nicotine receptors. Um, so now take everything that you said, yeah. which was all practical, which was all the assumptions that we made in the ago. beginning. And turn everything kind of up the upside down on its head. So now the way people are starting to kind of see the research uh, come in and the information, because it hasn't been around that long, it hasn't been long enough for us to really get to know this disease. These are just little bits and pieces of things that I found. And it seems like people that are obese tend to have more problems than people who uh, have normal body weight. And, it, and for some reason, yes, it does seem like the, the African-American population seems to be getting hit the hardest. 
And I haven't really, in, in where I'm at in my environment, I can't really see like the demographic flow. Like everybody that comes into our, in our into our unit, there's just pretty much a pretty even mix of people when it comes to gender, race, you know, with comorbidity. The other piece of this is just like we hear so many different things from so many different avenues, from so many different political avenues. Um, and it just what what I'm, the sense I'm getting from you now is like not number one, yes, it's it's problematic. I think you would agree that the that the the disease has been politicized, and we can mm-hmm. talk about that. But it almost doesn't matter anymore because things are changing so rapidly. Uh, and the information that you're getting about the disease, as you as you say, as you get to know it, seems to change some of the assumptions that, that you were making earlier on, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight months ago. If you, if you had said to me like 10 minutes ago <laughs> before we had this conversation that people who smoked actually might be better off <laughs> because they had, <laughs> for whatever reason, some some protection, I would have said that's the most, the craziest thing I've ever heard. But, right. but now, but my point is like all this information is new and coming in and coming in at a rapid pace. And so to be able to um, absorb it, to be able to t- digest it and then put it out to the public in a way that's, um, uh, you know, fairly uh, disseminated and makes sense and is is careful and is not alarmist seems not to be at all uh, in, in the media's best interest because they just want to um, generate eyeballs and generate clicks. And so they just say the craziest things they can think of. And if their audience is people who are in COVID denial, which is actually the brass tax that I wanted to get to, because mm-hmm. um, there still is the, 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 the fact that there are still people out there who just simply do not take this disease seriously. Um, I still hear of people saying that it's, it's a hoax. I still hear of people saying that it's, uh, you know, something devised by the left in order to get Donald Trump out of office. These mm-hmm. are the things that I'm sure you hear too. Um, yeah. And I just, I would like to put to rest, at least in this conversation, from a practical, scientific, fact-based standpoint, uh, and you're already you've already built this up because of what you're talking about in terms of what the symptoms are and, right. and how they manifest and what you need to do in order to treat people. What is it that this public, the American public, such as we are, what are we still not getting? What what is the most tragic piece of misinformation, or what what is like the the greatest, most malicious misdirection? Uh, that people are still sort of clinging to, and and what kind of damage can continue to cause, and 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 how can it be stopped? And what do you see, and what do you feel as a practitioner in this industry about when you hear that kind of misinformation or the misdirection? Mm-hmm. What are you compelled to do and say? So just you know, go in that direction. There are differing opinions, obviously, between people that are working in healthcare and people that are out in the community doing other things. Um, especially with people that are working with COVID firsthand. Um, you know, back when it first started hitting us hard, like April, hmm. the issue was for, for people on the inside in the medical community, the issue was resources, especially ventilators. And not just ventilators, but also the, us, the people that need to run the ventilators and the nursing staff and aides. Um, human resources as well as the physical resources. I don't. I think people just didn't really understand what it's like when you have your your hospitals and your nursing homes running out of staff and resources to care for people. Um, and from what I can see happening in the political realm, it seems like people are more concerned about being told 
what it is they can and can't do. Yes. And not really understanding the impact the spread of this disease has on our resources. In the beginning, we, we just didn't have enough ventilators. Um, we didn't have enough people, uh, nursing staff. And what started to happen from my point of view, you have now a new, a new industry building around this disease. Yeah. Especially with healthcare staffing, um, where people are now starting to get become spread thin and they need more workers. They're offering more and more money to have people leave their jobs to go to New York and California during this time where you had all the hot spots. They're offering these contracts. They're they're putting people up in room and board and they need people to come and work. Uh, in these areas that are starting to get filled with these people that are now COVID positive. And now it's a, it, it's a different kind of atmosphere now than it was back in April and May. We, we went through a wave and I don't know if that had something to do with the temperature rising, um, but things kind of settled down a little bit internally, but outside the political issues grew. Um, and all I could see was a merger of um, racial issues and mask issues and Republican versus Democrat and CNN versus Fox. And it, it just seemed like the whole mask and COVID thing and people not believing that it existed, um, not wanting to wear masks because it's their right to be able to go outside and not wear a mask and go into stores. Like all that kind of blew up into this this huge thing, and it didn't change the fact that this is a very highly infectious communicable disease that is real. <laughs> yeah. Because once once the weather started to cool down again, we started to see that influx. We started to see the demand go up again, and we started to see more and more patients starting to come into the hospitals. And I think we're, I mean, to me, it seems like we're still on the upswing. Were people to be more conscious and, and more careful and maybe listen to guidelines that are put out by public health institutions, um, would we be in a better position? I'm not sure. But I think the main issue right now is, is staffing. I'm working 60 hours a week. We do not have enough staff. I think that you've spoken to, in a very concise way, the noise and how, you know, whatever the, whatever the, whatever contributes to the noise, all it is is noise in the end right. and it doesn't serve anyone. So let's talk about you. So you say you're working 60 hours a week. Um, number one, and, you know, are you, do you feel like you're fairly compensated? Number two, are you getting, um, are you getting like the rest that you need in order to be the best possible employee that you can be? Uh, number three, do you see kind of like the fatigue in yourself and your colleagues? And I guess number four, how do you cope? Uh, to kind of give you an idea of the way things are kind of working within these systems. If you were to go on say Indeed or any job search and you were to look up rest, like uh, nursing or re focus on respiratory care, you're going to find that a lot of different health systems and a lot of different private companies are putting out a lot of huge incentives to get RTs and nurses to sign up for contracts right now. So 
what we're finding is, like so the hospital that I currently work for, they're, they were offering $400 bonuses, right, for their nursing staff to pick up shifts so that we could have enough staff to come in and um, take care of people. The same for respiratory. Nurses were turning it down because they're tired. Mm. They're already working. They've been picking up extra shifts. It's, it was not enough. So what they were doing is they were paying agencies. So eight, there's there, there's different types of employees within the hospital system, right? You have the ones that work for the for the hospital, and then you have the staff called agency staff or contract workers. They work for other companies. Mm-hmm. So whenever you don't, when you have holes to fill and you don't have enough of your own staff, you can reach out to these agencies and they'll send nurses and respiratory therapists there. Uh, to cover those those holes. And right now, the agencies are charging what they call COVID rates. Not only are they charging regular COVID rates, they're charging triple COVID rates, meaning that there's just not enough healthcare workers to go around so they can get away with charging triple what they normally would charge. Hmm. So they're paying thousands of dollars for the staff people to come in and the, the staff that works we are kind of upset because the hospital is offering us these smaller bonuses to pick up shifts when these other people are getting paid a lot of money to come in. So the hospital that I work for, they got pretty smart and they started offering larger bonuses to their staff. Bonuses that I can't even believe that they're offering as incentives to get us to come in and and cover. Um, So yeah, people are tired. People are turning down a lot of money um, Mm. to be home. Um, you know, they are, they're burnt out and it's up to the individual to try to get enough rest to keep yourself mentally aware, because what we do is very mentally taxing and you really got to pay attention to what you're doing because you could easily hurt somebody or kill somebody, you know, you have to be sharp. So in your case, how do you take care of yourself and what keeps you going? I try to look at certain situations and, and anything that I have to go through or be involved in, um, I try to see what can I pull out of this situation? What kind of positive thing can I gain from this? So for me, this is a, this is a learning process. I'm experiencing situations, challenges that I haven't experienced in the 11 years that I've been doing this. So for me, what keeps me interested in getting up and going into work every day is learning new ways to keep people healthier, keep them stable, um, fix problems, troubleshoot situations. As a respiratory therapist, when we deal in the line of breathing, you don't. when something goes wrong, you don't have time to figure things out. It's almost pretty much like you have to know exactly what to do right then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the challenge that kind of keeps me going um, and to know that these people don't have anybody. Uh, you're, it's just you. You're in there, and they say you, they see you every day as the nurse, as the respiratory therapist, as the CNA. You're the only one that interacts with them. You're the only one that holds their hand, touches them, um, lays a cold washcloth on their forehead when they're sweating, cleaning them, brushing their teeth. Um, that's it. That's all they have. I always try to look at you know things from that, their perspective. You know, what if that was me in the bed? So that's a big part of the drive, you know, knowing that these people need need to be cared for, 
they don't have the family there. They just every now and then they get the opportunity to talk to them over a Zoom meeting. Um, but just to know that you can go in and, and try to make a difference, whether they are aware that you're there or they're not. Um, and also there is a huge incentive. I mean, I have a lot of goals. I mean, it's going to keep it real. They pay us a lot of money right now when there's a lot of people that aren't even able to go to work. I'm thankful and grateful that, you know, it's like a dark cloud with a silver lining that, you know, they are now finally starting to to invest in the healthcare worker. Recognize how important you are and how important you've been for all. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to make it sound like it's all about money, but I mean, really, you know, it, we, I mean, we obviously, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Right? That's what drives people to get up and go to work. A lot of the times it's their wage. You know, if you have goals, if you have bills to pay, you know, you have family members to take care of, uh, it is an incentive, you know, to be able to take advantage of the financial opportunities there, especially if you're in a household where the other person that you're with, if it's your partner, your wife, your husband, um, anybody else you might live with, they might be out of a job right now because yeah. their industry has been hurt by the pandemic. Right. So like in my case, my partner, um, she has a spa. She owns a spa. She does massage therapy, um, facial. She's an esthetician and a massage therapist. Completely um, shut down. Completely shut down. So I am the breadwinner, you know, for the whole house now. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of other people that are in that situation and yeah. worse. You know, so I have to give thanks that, you know, I, I, I depend on patients just as much as the patients depend on me. Hmm. So that, that's what keeps me going in a nutshell, like all of those things combined and my outlook and my perception and putting myself in somebody else's shoes and what kind of care would I want to have, you know, you know, uh, I believe in karma. I, I try to take good care of my patients because I may, I may be the patient one day. Absolutely. So, uh, let's, let's just for the moment, if you don't mind, um, dip into a bit of the, you know, the, the darkest side of this, which, um, you mentioned at the outset, and I know that you wanted to come back to, yeah. which is, uh, the moment of the, at the end. Yeah. Um, and you've, you've, you've said, you stated, uh, pretty, you know, uh, clearly that these are not moments that you forget pretty easily. Uh, mm -hmm. And the piece, the pieces of this that is kind of like beginning to um, crystallize in my mind is, as you said several times, um, for most of their or all of their stay in the hospital, because that's when you see them, yeah. you're the one making decisions. You're making decisions on the fly. These mm -hmm. decisions are, are um, you know, they're life and death, literally mm -hmm. life and death. Uh, and you're the only person there and they don't have health proxies. They don't have... Um, people who are speaking for them. They don't have people there to give them support other than you. They don't have spouses, children, uh, extended family. They're not, they're just not there. So oh. you're it. So like, that's a tremendous amount of pressure that you add. And so if yeah. you, if you kind of factor that into what happens towards the end, are you having to make these decisions? Um, or are the people around you having to make these decisions about whether or not a person, um, is going to make it or not? And therefore the resources need to be allocated to someone else. And, and, and like, what happens, like what goes through your mind or I, how do you kind of um, process the fact that you are indeed the, the literal end of the line for this person? Um, once again, it's very complicated. 
but there's different factors that, that weigh in. Case in point, the last person that I had to do terminal wean on did not have family. The power of attorney, the person making the decisions was an actual attorney. It was a lawyer. Hmm. Um, but it, it, the way that the process plays out, you know, you have, you'll have somebody, let's say you have um, patient A and we can't stabilize them. They get intubated. They get put on a ventilator and they're not getting better and they're just on the ventilator. You're not supposed to be ventilated for an extremely long period of time. You're supposed to be able to come off of the ventilator and get better. Mm -hmm. So when you get to that point where we're not even able to what they call wean you, which is the process that we use to get them breathing on their own again and get them off of the ventilator, which is, you know, the breathing machine. Um, they're, they're just not doing well with the weaning and either they're going to stay on a vent chronically, go to a nursing home and be on the ventilator for the rest of their life, hmm. which, you know, you try to, when you have social workers, you know, that, that are in case managers that are a part of your hospital, they're the ones that make the phone calls to the family members and try to talk to them and, and tell them your mom or your dad or your, you know, your brother, your sister, they're not able to get off of life support. You know, a decision has to be made. What were their wishes? Now you have to look into what's called their advanced directives. Did they make some sort of um, statement in writing as to what they would want done when they're put in this situation. Some people are considered, they put themselves in as, you know, I do not want resuscitated. They become what's called a DNR. Mm -hmm. Some people become what's called a DNI, which is a do not intubate. We want you to do everything for me to keep me here, but just don't put me on a ventilator. Do not put a tube down my throat into my lungs. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a challenge for me as the respiratory therapist, because now I can't ventilate you and you're suffering on the last step before ventilation is a chronic acute BiPAP machine, which is a non-invasive machine. I put a mask on you and I'm trying to ventilate you with that. After we can't maintain you with that, then you get intubated. So now you're on a BiPAP machine and you got breakdown on your nose because this mask, I have it strapped on your face so tight to keep it from leaking that is tearing the skin off of your nose. And we're trying to convince your family who's quarreling amongst themselves about whether or not they want to give up on you or not hmm. while you're basically suffering day after day after day after day. And we're going in and we're putting in time with you. And the more unstable you are, the more time I have to spend with you and the less time I get to spend with other people, which right. becomes frustrating because, you know, you can't spend all your time with one person the way things are set up. And you will have people, management and other people kind of checking you like, hey, you're, you're not getting to the rest of the patients quick enough. Hmm. Okay. So this becomes very frustrating for the clinician and, and the patient is suffering while these decisions are being made amongst the family. I think if the family members were healthcare workers, you wouldn't really be in that situation. Um, it becomes an ethical issue, obviously, because some people just don't want to give up on their family. Right. But if there's no coming back and they're just suffering, they're what they call, I call them alive, but they're not living. Right. Okay. So even if you do get intubated and uh, you get to that point where you're suffering on the ventilator, um, you're throwing up in 
bile into the tube and the tube is pushing it back into your lungs and you got pressure sores and you got holes now eating away in your skin on your backside and your butt and um, you're getting other infections now, you're getting pneumonias. They have you on all these different medications trying to keep you stabilized, anxiety medications, morphine, pain medications, Ativan. I mean, you know, to see somebody go through this, you wouldn't want to wish this on your worst enemy. Right. Okay. So as staff, as healthcare workers, it's like, you know, you're every day you get an update. Like, what did the, what did the daughter say? What did the son say? What did the brother or the sister, what did the husband or the wife say? They're like, well, they want us to keep trying. Hmm. It, it, it breaks your heart, you know, and, and some people may take offense to that. And if that's the case, I apologize because of their values and their, maybe their religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, they may say, well, that's just not what we do. We do everything possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, I already told my family, do not do everything possible. If you already know I crossed that line, I don't want to be around. I do not want to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. That's pure hell. Mm-hmm. Um, it hurts to see these people suffering day after day after day. You know, they're not getting better, but we're keeping them alive. We're fighting the natural, from my, in my opinion, we're fighting the natural course in the life process, whether it's a disease or not, whether you're in your 30s or whether you're in your 90s. You, you're, 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 not, you're not able to progress and get well and get better. You're, now it's just everything else from here on out is just adding to the agony and to the suffering. And, um, and when, it, when it gets to the point where the family does finally make that decision, normally they're able to come in from, from the beginning. Once that decision is made, that person is made either what they call um, comfort care or hospice. Make, we put in orders for comfort medications. We give them a lot of drugs uh-huh. to make them comfortable. And also then if they're on any type of breathing apparatus, apparatus, a ventilator, we're pulling them off that machine at a certain moment. Mm-hmm. So they'll come and get me. Hey, Mike. Hey, it's time you know, for Mr. So-and-so. Um, it's terminal wean, the family's here. So now the family can actually come in and they'll spend some time with that person. And many facilities, they'll bring in the refreshments. Um, they'll, they'll set the room up in a way, try to be accommodating as possible. Mm-hmm. And the family is there and, and, and it becomes a different room. That room that all the noise was there and things were beeping and you got nurses running in and out of it's now quiet. The light is dim. That person is not struggling anymore. They're peaceful um, and they're comfortable. And now the family's there. There's a lot of emotion. So it's almost like now when you come in the room, it's like you're kind of knocking gingerly, you're tiptoeing in. Anything that you have in that room or that you have there, you're trying to be a minimalist. You're not, you don't want to spend that much time interrupting the family. It becomes a totally different space. And it's a relief for me. And then once I go in personally for a terminal wean, they may have a trach, a whole a tube in their neck. They may have a vent, a tube that go in, that goes into their lungs. I will disconnect the machine from either the trach or the uh, endotracheal tube. Uh, turn the machine off. I pull the tube out of their lungs. Or if they have a trach, I put a collar over the trach and I give them usually a low dose of oxygen 
for comfort, just so their heart's not struggling. Sometimes they pass away in five minutes. Sometimes they pass away in five hours. And sometimes it takes a couple of days. But it all depends now with this type of disease that we're seeing. It usually only takes a few minutes to a few hours. And you're seeing a lot of that now? More so now than I did before. I, I, I remember my first terminal ween, um, a number of years ago. And I will never forget that. I've had a number of them in between. It's just part of the job. It's so surreal sometimes. You know, I could be working on a unit and go in and do a terminal wean. And right after that, I might see one patient and I go sit down and eat my lunch. Then I get called in to talk to a doctor about orders, or I might give report, you know, to another RT before I leave. It's just no different than anything else that you do in your day now. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a weird kind of thing for me. Every now and then I find myself in a position where I'm working and I'm just kind of like, nobody really would believe this. Like nobody really like, it's just surreal. Like I kind of stop in the moment and I'm like, wow, you know, when you're with this person who now doesn't have family to come in, it's just you and the nurses and the aides. So sometimes we'll all kind of come in. Um, some of the nurses will hold their hands. They'll stroke, you know, their forehead and, you know, their hair will make them comfortable. Um, I'll disconnect them from the machine. Uh, I've even had a, a CNA one time. She sang Amazing Grace for a patient. And all of us were in tears, you know, mm -hmm. uh, all the nurses and the CNAs. And I mean, I'm starting to kind of tear up a little bit now thinking about it. And I remember him. I remember that patient. I remember his name. You know, that was one of the first few terminal weans that I ever did many years ago. You know, when they don't have family, they don't have anybody to be there with them. And, you know, these aren't things that we go you know, out and talk about. Obviously, this isn't, you know, this is an interview, you know, in a question, you know, that you asked me and this came up. But this isn't something that I was able to go out and be like, hey, you know what I did today? Right. You know, like this is just something that you do and then you just you live your life. You go home and you hang out with your family and, you know, you just carry on. I actually do think when you say that you you this is something that you talk about all the time. This is a an anomaly doing an interview. I, I actually think that someone like you and there's you know a lot of people like you, mm -hmm. people need to hear this. People need to hear this, whether or not whatever camp you're in. Um, whether you've been affected by this personally um, or you're somebody who is completely oblivious, uh, whether you're someone who's like, you know, a, a COVID denier, if those that term exists, um, I, it doesn't doesn't matter. I think everyone should hear this kind of story from someone who is dealing with this because, um, number one, uh, on the one hand, like you, like we sort of alluded to earlier, this is the kind of work that you were doing even before this huge crisis hit. And, you know, I, I very much appreciate your can, your, your, your candor regarding compensation um, and how, you know, outside uh, contractors are coming in and getting paid lots of money to do this because there's so much fatigue about it. Like, these are all things that, that are not something not talked about in the open all that much for reasons that I think are obvious. Um, but, but a thing that you do has always been important. And whether or not you were, you know, compensated for it for it in a in a in a, in a comparable way in the past, you should have been. Um, and and the kinds of the humanity with which you discuss your everyday experience, you know, even 
even touching upon the absurdity of doing a terminal wean and then going and eating like a turkey sandwich. I, I just, I think that these are things that people need to hear. If it doesn't change their minds about what they think about the disease, that's fine. I think that there's like a consciousness or an energy in the universe that mm. we can all tap into if we're only open to it. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes we need teachers and sometimes we need guides. If you don't have access to certain um, uh, conduits of information, uh, I think that you know it's up to those guides and teachers to bring those that information to you. I hope this isn't getting too esoteric. My whole um, thought process and vibe is is about you know the energy you know the universal energy we're all connected we're all a part of it and i think that um i i believe that if more people were in tune to the vibrations the world would be a much better place i think people are afraid of that sort of thing and they they sort of like they you know they shiver whenever they hear that's that that cause it sounds too new agey or, or something mm-hmm. or yeah, it's unfortunate it is unfortunate. Whatever. There's there's no way you're gonna, you and I are going to convince them of that right now in the next <laughs> right. session. But what I do think will touch people and stay with them if they are listening, it's not like I have a huge audience, but um, I'm hoping that people share this around, is, is again, like I said, the humanity of your story um, and um, just how willing you are, um, whether you're aware of this or not, to to give that energy of yourself all the time. Uh, and so, so few of us are even in a position to do so on a regular everyday basis. But I think that the importance of your story is you're not an automaton. You're not a robot. You're a human being and you're a human being dealing with other human beings, uh, as you described pretty vividly in some of their worst conditions uh, that they've ever experienced. And um, there's, there's so many pressures. There's so many, there's corporate pressures. Uh, you know, like you said, there's economic pressures. There's the pressures of like the bureaucracy of the hospital and, and hierarchy and, and all those things. Sam, you're painting a really, you're, uh, accurate, vivid (laughs) picture with your words. Uh, and I'm just going to add that our nurses and our RTs, we, we do cry with each other. Um, and sometimes we're, we're the strong one and somebody is just venting to us. We're hugging each other. Some of these nurses have been doing it for 20 something years and sometimes they just break down. And sometimes it's one of us, you know, and we, we, we support each other. And with the way that you, you just basically explained that I wanted to add that piece in. We are humans. Yes. And we, we do, we have emotion and that emotion pours out um, every now and again. Um, we keep it together the best way that we can, but sometimes you can't keep it all in. So the last thing I want to say, uh, that's you know a good place to end, but I, I do want to sort of offer you one final opportunity to kind of weigh in on something, uh, which is related, which is just this. Uh, I don't hear in your voice and in, when you're talking about a lot of frustrating situations and a lot of um, avoidable situations and a lot of deaths and a lot of tragedy, I don't hear any anger or resentment in your voice. I don't feel a sense that like you want to lash out at anyone or that there are any parties that you want to point blame at and say like, this is your fault. I don't hear that from you at all. And I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Maybe that's just your temperament and who you are as a person. But I think it's important to point that out because um, I am not like that. Uh, my temperament is very different. And like I- I'm not a health practitioner and I feel a tremendous amount of anger 
uh, about what I see around me is simply as like people I know who are engaging in everyday activities, like, you know, going to indoor dining and, you know, playing on their, you know, local soccer teams and, mm-hmm. and you you know, my kids who I've kept home from school, they're like one of maybe, you know, 10 or 12 or 15% of the kids who are virtual and everybody else is going to school and the teachers who are going because they have to or else they lose their jobs and the situations that they're put into. Like mm-hmm. I just, I have a lot of like everyday resentment and anger about that. And, you know, we mentioned briefly again about how this whole thing has been politicized. That too makes me angry, but mm-hmm. I don't hear any of that coming from you. And I just wanted to kind of like acknowledge that. Uh, and we talk about energy that we put out into the universe um, that that connects us all. And yes. I appreciate the fact that you don't sound that way and that you aren't bitter and you aren't acerbic and you aren't like sitting with your hands folded in a corner, like judging. Um, instead, you're just, you're just being, you're just a part of this as horrible as it is. And I think that in and of itself is like the most important thing. You're very intuitive. It's part of this is it feels like something that is kind of new to, for me to hear from somebody else. And at the same time, I, I'm not really surprised. Um, you know, I, I, everything that I, 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 when I when I'm aware of myself, because I'm not always aware, I, I try to pull myself into a position of awareness. Of actually being conscious about me as a being in in the in the world. And when I do this, I envision kind of myself as part of like a, like a documentary reality type film, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a realist person. I'm a very Mm -hmm. practical person. And I just kind of place myself into this film and I can't really control it. You know, we're all, we're all here right now. There's people that have been here before us. There's people that are going to be here after we're gone. And I think that we all have a purpose. And um, not to say that, you know, I don't get upset or I don't get mad. I do get frustrated and angry and mad. And sometimes, you know, it plays out, you know, in my mannerism. But I just try to take everything in stride and go with the flow. And, um... I'm a, I just feel like I'm a, I'm I'm a part of something big and I just want to do the right thing. I want to treat people the way that they want to, that they should be treated. Mm-hmm. I want people to treat me the way that I should be treated. Mm-hmm. And I just I feel like I'm just watching myself be a part of life as it goes along. Um uh, I'm not going to be here someday. I'm going to pass. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the future, nobody's going to be left to remember who I am. You know, I'm just going to become part of the universe again. And my, you know, atoms are going to be a part of the environment. And, you know, it that's just the um, the course of things. I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to what's next. You know, this is just a part of my existence here on this planet. And I. I just want to do right by others and play my part. And I'm, I'm just enjoying the ride, you know, and that's it. Yeah. I feel like we could, you know, go on for four or five hours here. Uh, we won't. Um, and, uh, <laughs> we could. You we and I, our <laughs> listeners will be happy about that because yeah. there's so much that we just kind of scratch the surface on. Yeah. Um, like not, not least the whole idea of, which I didn't know about, like every different 
portion of the hospital um, being sort of dealing with COVID differently. Yes. Um, that is not something that I that I had a sense of, and now I do. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, just there's a lot more to be learned. Is is I guess mm-hmm. the the last thing to say about it. So thank you uh, very much for taking the time to talk with me about this and be as and being as honest and candid as you were. I've learned thank a lot. You, I've learned I appreciate the. I appreciate the fact that you wanted to hear what I had to say and my my experiences. And thank you um, for taking the time to listen. Thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. You can find older episodes of What We Will Abide on the podcast website, as well as on Facebook. My thanks to Mike Taylor for his candor and openness, and to friend of the pod and my friend and business partner, John Darby, who introduced me to Mike. Music for this episode by Sherbansky, whose album Out to Lunch can be found on Bandcamp. To interact with what we will abide, visit our Facebook page or find me on Twitter at samschindler43. Thanks again. I'm gonna leave you there